Welcome to River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg. My name is Nolan Bicknell. With me, as always, is my co-host, Robert Zirk. On today's show, RC360 Stacy Cardigan-Smith recently attended a symposium held by the Canada Northwest FASD Partnership, looking to change the discourse surrounding fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. She sat down with Holly Gammon of Healthy Child Manitoba and Nat Kendall-Taylor from the Frameworks Institute about how to reframe the conversation surrounding FASD. We'll also get an update on Siloam Mission's Make Room Capital campaign and learn more about the progress of its expansion that began construction just over one year ago. Then we'll also speak with another Winnipeg impact maker in our community. Sunny Primolo speaks with Katrina Tessier, owner of Scout Coffee and Tea, located at 859 Portage Avenue, to learn more about their I Love to Read Month initiative to get more children and parents involved with reading in a really fun way. And finally, in our Winnipeg Foundation Reconciliation Grantee Spotlight, we will speak with William Barr. He's the Chief Operating Officer of the Islamic Social Services Association to learn a little bit more about how they are building connections between Muslim and Indigenous communities. We've got all this, some great tunes, and much, much more on today's episode of River City 360. Hello and welcome to River City 360. Nolan Bicknell over here, Robert Zirk over there, coming at you from the CJNU studios at the quarter of Portage in Maine. Robert, how are you feeling this fine day? I'm feeling well today, Nolan. Um, how are you feeling? You were away also last well, week. Yeah. Uh, feeling know, it was feeling kinda, a little under the weather. It was weird sort of post vacation jet lag as we know i was gone to the philippines for a couple weeks so then coming back just sleep was off food was off everything was just kind of a little weird last week but i'm back and better than ever now i'm glad to hear rested and ready to rock uh we have a pretty cool show there's a lot of really uh interesting conversations uh the first ones especially stacy cardigan smith um went to a symposium that was kind of all about reframing the conversation around fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and uh the frameworks institute does a lot of work in kind of reframing social issues and trying to impact social change just by basically talking about things differently and, and re sort of wiring how we talk about stuff uh, there's some really, really cool conversations that I kind of want to get to quickly because uh, it, we have a lot of show and it's kind of a full thing. So we always kick off the show with a song. So Robert, what have you got for us this week? Well, we're going to start things off with Benny Goodman and If Dreams Come True right here on River City 360. Thank you. 
Welcome back to River City 360. You are listening to the show hosted by Nolan Bicknell and Robert Zirk right here on CJNU 93.7. In our first uh, conversations today, Stacey Cardigan-Smith is bringing us a two-part series on on reframing social issues and why that matters. She attended the Canada Northwest FASD Partnerships Symposium, which focused on changing the discourse surrounding fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. She spoke with Holly Gammon, manager of FASD Initiatives for Healthy Child Manitoba, about why it's important to change the way we think about FASD and different social issues in general. Stacey? The Canada Northwest FASD Partnership recently held a symposium looking to change the conversation about FASD. Tell me a little bit about Canada Northwest FASD Partnership and the symposium. Okay. The Canada Northwest um, FASD partnership first started um, way back in 1998, and it was a partnership between um, three of the Prairie Provinces. And they got together because they wanted to draw awareness to FASD and work together at some common um, ways of putting messages together, common resources. They wanted to pool some money so that they could hold conferences and um, symposia. And over time, that partnership grew so that it now includes the four Western provinces and the three territories. And we continue to do that work of sharing ideas, resources, policies, and pooling money so that we can host um, conferences and symposiums like this one that that, uh, went on here. So this particular symposium um, is about um, looking at the stigma that surrounds everyone impacted by FASD, whether that's um, use of alcohol during pregnancy, whether that's persons with FASD, there's a lot of stigma. Okay, that stigma is, is really interesting. And, and I, as you said, like the, the top of, of the symposium is change the conversation. So can you just tell me a little bit about why it's necessary to reframe the way people think about it and some of that stigma. I think one of the most important things is um, that a lot of people um, that that do use alcohol during pregnancy, um, they feel the public eye on them as, as they are bad people. They feel shamed and blamed. And what happens is that they don't want to come forward for help and support. So there's lots of barriers that are put in place for them. And if we could decrease that shame and blame, then we could, they would come more readily for service and support when they really need it. It's, 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 they need to come where there's no judgment. They need to come to a place where they're accepted and they can, they can um, get support and they can have someone take them just where they're at and, and help them along. And I think for those people with FASD, there's also a lot of, of shame and blame. And those people often feel that they, um, they're, they're judged, they're, they feel unsafe, they feel misunderstood, um, and they feel undervalued in society. And being undervalued in society means that they may not have the same access to support. They may not have the same access to housing or to getting jobs or to being able to participate fully in recreational programs. So there's a lot of places where they don't feel equity um, with the rest of society. So it's really important that um, some of that stigma um, be taken away. And can you talk to me just a little bit about what are some of the reasons why um, women do end up using um, alcohol 
consuming alcohol during pregnancy? Because it's it, it's really a very um, complex reason, isn't it? Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, I, it, it's there are various reasons I think why women um, drink during pregnancy, and I, I think that's one of the messages is we often say. Um, why don't women just stop? Like, it, it should be a simple choice. But, but people come from various places, and we have to look at the whole um, fabric of their lives, their whole social context. So that may mean um, maybe there's mental health issues. Maybe they're living in a, in a relationship where there's violence, and that's the way they cope. Maybe um, they have an addiction. Maybe they are in a place where they're living with tremendous peer pressure. We live in a society that really pushes alcohol on us. It's good if you're in university, you need to party hardy. Um, and to not drink sometimes makes you feel that you're not fitting in with the rest of society. So I think there's a whole vast array of reasons that people may drink. It could be intergenerational trauma. It could be whatever. So I think the most important thing that we can do for people is to gently walk with them and ask them what's their life about what's what's going on for them not to judge them that they're just maybe have a lack of willpower but what is it in their lives and how can we support that I think that's really interesting I just the whole idea right now of of mommy juice right about the Mm. there's so much people talk about it as a coping mechanism and it really it's very challenging and and it can lead to some some hard choices for moms right mm-hmm. and um, I also think it's really interesting like it's not an it's not an us versus them it's a whole community issue isn't it 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 totally is um, you know like, like I said it's it, it's we need to we need to support one another um, we need to be an understanding of each other um, you know when we um, when we work with people, when we're in a program, um, we can't make judgments. We need to to work together. When we, um, as a society, think about you know how we're um, how we're talking about alcohol and, and how the messages are coming across. We're in we're in schools and we we're, we have the opportunity to talk to young people um, about various coping strategies. There's all sorts of ways that um, we can help people and um, support each other. So Holly, you've shared some ways um, that you'd like people to think differently about FASD, but how do you actually get them to think that way? Mm-hmm. I think it, that's a difficult question, first of all, I'll say, um, because I think we need to I think we need to reframe the way we talk about FASD. And, and what I mean by that is we have to start getting messages out that really speak to the fact that all people have value in our society. Um, this disability is one of many disabilities. And, and um, the people with this disability have many ways that they can contribute to society. They can be valued in many ways, and I think um, we need to um, help people understand that this is no different than any other disability. So let's say you've successfully changed the conversation and people start thinking differently about FASD. How would people's lives be improved? Um, I think people would feel valued. Um, I think people would come to services without as much hesitation. Um, I think we would not hear stories like, um, you know, 
my son needs lots of support, but he doesn't want to tell anybody that he has FASD. So instead, he is struggling and he's homeless. Um, people wouldn't be um, afraid to let people know because right now, often when somebody says, I have FASD, um, people back away. They walk away and they don't want to have anything to do with them. And um, that's, that's not that's not fair, that's not right, and that's, um, that's not going to be um, helpful to them. So it could change their lives incredibly. And I do think it's so interesting how with FASD, it's one of the only um, disorders that the fetal alcohol is actually in the title. So that really puts um, a lot of, of pressure and guilt on the mother. And, and similarly, um, as, as you were kind of getting at there, if, if the mother doesn't admit to it, then often that FASD diagnosis doesn't come right? They'll be diagnosed with something else. And then maybe that treatment that they would have if it, if that stigma wasn't there, isn't available because it's been misdiagnosed. So it, it, there's so many layers to this, hey? Mm-hmm. There, there certainly are, yeah. I mean, I think, I think the assessment itself, um, you know, some people say it's, it's almost puts a label on, but I think what it does is it, it helps people understand um, what parts of the brain may be affected because every person is is affected differently and then those resources and and supports could be put in place that are individually um, and specifically helpful to that individual Um, so it's not about putting a label it's about that support and how can we be most helpful well thank you so much holly this has been great to talk to you Uh, thanks so much for joining us on rc360 thank you so much for the opportunity Thanks, Stacey. So the keynote speaker at the symposium that Stacey was at was Nat Kendall-Taylor. Nat is the CEO of Frameworks Institute, a nonprofit organization that works to reframe social issues. Now, Frameworks worked with the Canada Northwest FASD partnership on potential ways to reframe fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in Manitoba and on a national scale. So Stacey sat down with Nat to discuss sort of just the importance of reframing these social issues as well as how the different ways charities may talk about their work and they might be doing themselves a disservice and doing a little bit more harm than good. We're going to hear about their conversation after our next song. So Robert, uh, what have you got for us right now? We've got Charlie Barnett and his orchestra with I Let a Song Go Out of My Heart right here on River City 360.
was Charlie Barnett and his orchestra with I Let a Song Go Out of My Heart. You are listening to River City 360 with Robert and Nolan right here on CJNU. And before the break, we had the first part of the two-part series brought to us by Stacey Cardigan-Smith about the importance of reframing how we talk about social issues. Up next is her conversation with Nat Kendall-Taylor from the Frameworks Institute, which is a U.S.-based charity that looks at how people think about social issues, about how to reframe discussions, and how doing so can have a real impact on social change. Stacy. First of all, tell me, what is Frameworks? What do you guys do? Uh, so the Frameworks Institute is a 501c, a nonprofit organization in the United States that does social science research that focuses on communications. So we study how people think about social issues from an empirical perspective, using methods primarily from, from my discipline of anthropology, but also from cognitive linguistics. And then we experiment with different ways of communicating information about issues to determine what are some effective ways of, of framing of positioning information about social issues. Okay, that was a very academic answer. So what I was interested there is at the very end when you started about talking about framing issues, why does that matter? So the the Institute is built on the premise that how you communicate issues matters as much as what you are communicating. Kind of the, the fact that uh, the way that we think about issues is dependent on how those issues are presented. So it's kind of a, a feature of, of how we think. We think differently based on whether an issue is presented with the value of interdependence or individual success, right? That, that choice affects how we hear information and what we do with it as a result. And so the Frameworks Institute is built around that premise that if we can uh, figure out what's some more effective, and when I say effective, I mean kind of what are some ways of framing issues that, that allow people to engage with them with open minds rather than shut down immediately from either a political perspective or, or the perspective that they already know what the information is about, even though they might not. In a culture today where we have a lot of bipartisan politics, it's either us versus them, it seems like some of the work that you'd be doing is even even more important. Can you give me some examples of how you are able to kind of break down some of that us versus them or, or some work you've done in that area? Yeah, so there's uh, the interesting thing uh, about the work that we do is, is that we get to work on a whole bunch of issues. So you get to see these patterns uh, that exist in how people think about issues. And us versus them thinking is, is one of the, the kind of big three that, that we've noticed. There's also, uh, in addition to that, there's the sense of individualism, that issues and outcomes are the way that they are as an exclusive product of whether you as an individual try or do not, whether you have willpower or you don't. Um, and the third is a really powerful sense, uh, which is related to the kind of bipartisan government point that you made, which we call fatalism. The fact that kind of issues were, we have the issues that, that we do, we always will, and there's nothing meaningful, meaningful that we can do about any of it. So a lot of the work that we do, even though we may be working on a specific issue, uh, public education reform or adolescent substance use, is trying to, to, to figure out what the frames are, what the alternative stories are that um, counteract or, or counterbalance those really strong, dominant strains or, or veins of culture. Because each of those, whether it's fatalism, individualism, or us versus them-ism, has, has problems in our thinking. So if we're always thinking that, that social issues are 
an issue of us versus them, then we understand them in a zero-sum way. We think that you know, any more for you and yours, by definition, means less for me and mine. So if I'm thinking about that, I become unsupportive and actually reject a whole bunch of ideas that are designed to, uh, to remediate or prevent social issues. So we're always trying to find, um, even though we have our head down on a particular issue, what are those, th those bigger frames that can kind of stand up to or contest us versus them thinking fatalism or, or individualism? And one of them on us versus them-ism, and it won't be surprising, is that um, we all, uh, you and I standing here right now, have that in us. Like we can easily lock into thinking about issues as being my group versus your group, kind of limited pools and pies of resources. But we also have an alternative way of thinking, which is collective, which is about interdependence, which is about the fact that how I do is, is fundamentally intertwined with how you do and how, and how others do. So we're always trying to um, advance those more collective perspectives. But it's amazing, I think, how, how easy it is for even well-meaning advocates to fall into the trap of us versus them, Some easy as the pronouns that we use, right? So always talking about us and them, which is something that we all do. Every time we say that, all we do is we ingrain that, that sense of division even more and, and more. So would you say, can you just, if you're going to reframe an issue, can you just start using, do you have to tell people you're going to reframe that issue or can you just start reframing that issue? So that's a, it's a really interesting and, and good uh, question. And it's, it's the reason why kind of there's one group of folks who we work with that is the most difficult to work with. Um, and it's journalists. Uh, and it, it's, it's journalists not because they're like they don't get this or they're, you know, stupid or anything like that. It's because uh, they view their, their professional practice as kind of the neutral presentation of, of information, which you know, we're both, you can't see this on the radio, but we're both shaking our heads and, and thinking that that's actually not true, is that journalists are framing the issue all the time. But the worst thing that you can do to get a journalist to kind of think critically about framing an issue is to talk to them about framing an issue, right? Because as soon as they see that, they see it as propaganda, deliberate manipulation, the, all the stuff that they, that they aren't down with and don't do. So I actually think you don't, you don't want people to know they're being framed is kind of a, a weird way of saying it. This is a little, little obtuse, but you want the frames to come into your messages and out of your mouth in a way that's really fluid and authentic and fits with your identity as a, as a practitioner, as an advocate, as an activist. You don't want those frames to be obvious because once they are obvious, people get hip and they realize um, kind of what's going on and then they're at attention and then it becomes a very different endeavor to try to shift understandings. So um, as a journalist, um, I've also been trained that storytelling is the best way to, 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 to change or switch a frame or change opinions or, or make an impact. Tell me about the role that storytelling plays in your work. So we talked about this a little bit at the event that we're both at right now. Um, but so, so I'm, I'm an anthropologist by training and anthropologists uh, really don't like to say there's any such thing as human universals, right? Everything's culturally or individually specific. Um, we fell hard for postmodernism. But storytelling and thinking in story is arguably a human universal, right? Our, that's how our minds work. We were kind of evolved. And there's some great work on the kind of from an evolutionary uh, perspective, on a, from an evolutionary biological perspective on, 
on how our brains evolved to, to work in story, but it's true. We think in story, we remember in story, we retrieve and pass in story. And so anyone who's not using that to their strategic advantage is at a huge disadvantage. That said, there are ways in which our penchant, our preoccupation with story can lead communicators into some unproductive directions. And, and so not, if your goal is to advance social policy and, and kind of social solutions to public problems, there is a whole, a whole bucket of stories that actually gets in the way of that. And so those are stories about individuals whereby the problem is the failure of will and the solution is the exertion thereof. Kind of the classic bootstrap stories. We love those stories. We love them. Journalists love them. They're easy to tell and they get eyeballs on, on, on paper, right? But when we tell those stories, all we do is we advance the story in people's minds that the world works the way that it does because of individual willpower and choice. Um, and a lot of the work that we do, and this is not our idea, it's kind of one of the founding fathers of framing, a guy named Shanto Iyengar, is we try to advance instead of those individual um, kind of close-up portrait or episodic stories, we try to tell the, the more landscape, um, what are called thematic stories. So stories that always put people in a place that have as characters in those stories um, systems and resources and access to things that people need to, to do well or things that if they are missing, they don't do well. Kind of the whole idea that it takes a village to raise. Yeah. Or, or what I think is really well, and again, this is not mine at all, but, but telling what you can think of as wide-angled stories or, or stories that have a wide-angle lens on them that don't allow us to walk away from a story thinking that it's about you know, poor Bob or poor Jane over here who fell into hard times and, and clawed their way out, but stories that kind of force your attention on, on the bigger picture, on, on what else is going on that may... Um, constrain those choices that Bob or I don't know what the woman's name was that I just said Jane, Jane um, are are dealing with such a fascinating interview like thank you so much so many great ideas I think that they have such a great impact about the way we view our lives or even the things that we take for granted and, and we don't take the time to stop and think about so I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to speak with me Matt Nat. great thank you Stacy appreciate it thanks Thanks, Stacey. Now, if you want to learn a little bit more about the Frameworks Institute, you can visit their website. It's frameworksinstitute, all one word, dot org, frameworksinstitute.org. Coming up next, an update on Silo Mission's Make Room Capital campaign, where we're going to learn about the expansion that began construction about one year ago. But before we get to that, here's uh, Artie Shaw with Night and Day, right here on River City 360. <laughs>
Welcome back to River City 360. Robert Zirk here with you today. What you just heard was us going on a tour of Silo Mission's new expansion, which is under construction. Last Thursday, we actually had the chance to visit Silo Mission to learn more about the progress of their Make Room Capital campaign, as well as the construction of the new building. The event took place one year since the new building broke ground, and we had a chance to learn more and, as I mentioned, get a tour of the space as it was under construction so far. We caught up with Siloam Mission CEO Jim Bell following the press conference. He spoke about how Siloam would be addressing the need for more beds to be available for people experiencing homelessness. Currently we have 110 beds and they are filled to capacity every night. And we are fortunate that we have relationships with other agencies that uh, we communicate and we're able to redirect to other agencies that have space and have beds. So we are at capacity of 110 beds every night and of course part of this project is uh, will be an increase in beds up to 50 beds, an area devoted to women, safe and secure, and that's part of the major need. Mr. Bell also explained that the resources devoted to the new building will help Siloam expand and enhance some much needed services. With the emphasis on mental health, we will have a new area in the building that's devoted to mental wellness. Uh, we are keeping, uh, we are participating in a mental wellness research project right now so that we can learn as much as we can, as quickly as we can, so that we can uh, provide those services with other partners to the best of our ability. But in terms of the other services, we're going to see uh, increased area for healthcare, transition services, which is basically one-on-one, -on -one, uh, perhaps job employment, our clothing area for when people come by to take select clothing that meets their needs. And of course our dining hall, which was phase one, where you're standing right now is the old dining hall, which had a capacity of 150. That dining hall right now, we can seat up to 400 people. So that gives you an indication that the need's not going away, but we want to work collectively and collaboratively. So maybe one day we can be talking about reducing homelessness significantly. And I think we will. John White experienced homelessness off and on while struggling with addictions. He credits Siloam Mission with helping him transition out of the cycle of homelessness. The beginning is to have a roof over your head, especially in the winter time. When you arrive into these places, you get to talk to other people, and you get to talk to some of the people that work here and volunteer. And you start to learn that there's more options in the street you know, after a while. So that's what happened to me. There are more options. And while Siloam recognizes that the current needs are great, Mr. Bell noted that a part of Siloam's strategy is to reduce homelessness overall by helping provide supports and opportunities that help people transition out of homelessness. I think it all has to do with transition and, pro and progress. So when people come in and utilize our services, there's no question it starts with a meal and it starts with a bed. And we will, I would endeavor to say that we will always be here for people that need that. But we also see that people that come in and utilize our services, they often come from backgrounds where they have utilized skills, they have gifts, but they have fallen on a challenge, the hardship that leads to homelessness. We recognize that. So when people come in here and utilize the core services, we want to be able to work with them through our transition services, which we already do, but it'll be expanded, so we can take those next steps so that people can exit the doors of Siloam and uh, move on to transitioning into um, a healthy lifestyle. 
One way that Siloam plans to do that is through a commercial laundry facility, which would be a social enterprise providing training opportunities for people experiencing homelessness. The social enterprise commercial laundry is, is something that falls outside of the $19 million capital project. But at the same time, I often say that the fundraising and the generosity of our community allows us to think ahead of the curve. That's one of the things. So we, we right now are in the planning stage to have space on our property here to develop a social enterprise laundry to train people and to put them to work, to pay them and to increase their skills so that they can transition. So the capital project is actually related to that because it allows us to think about these types of initiatives. And Siloam Mission is 90% of the way to reaching its goal of $19 million. The new expansion will be set to open in spring of 2020. It'll be business as usual with respect to trying to get us the way home on that last 10% or close to $2 million. So we're encouraged. The generosity of Winnipeggers and Manitobans has allowed us to get to the, the, the 17 million. So we will go about this as best we can to try to get it to the $19 million mark. Thank you so much to the staff at Siloam Mission for inviting us and taking us on the tour, and thank you to Jim Bell and John White for speaking with us. You can learn more about Siloam Mission's Make Room Capital campaign by visiting siloammakeroom.ca. Again, that's siloam, S-I-L-O-A-M, makeroom.ca. For River City 360, I'm Robert Zirk. Thanks, Robert. Coming up next is our weekly tribute to a Winnipeg impact maker. Katrina Tessier, who is the owner of Scout Coffee and Tea on Portage Avenue, is helping to promote I Love to Read Month in a very fun way. So stay tuned for that. Sunny Primolo uh, has a quick conversation with her. But before we get to that, and since we're going to be talking about the great work done at Scout Coffee, here's the coffee song by ID Gourmet right here on River City 360. Billions, so they got to find those extra cups to fill. They got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil. You can't get cherry soda, cause they got to sell their quota. And the way things look, I guess they never will. They've got a zillion tons of coffee in Brazil. No tea. Or tomato juice, you'll see No potato juice Cause the planters down in Santa's I'll say no, no, no A politician's daughter Was accused of drinking water And was fined a great big $50 bill They got an awful lot of coffee in Brazil Dunking doesn't take a lot of skill 
Listening to River City 360. I'm Sonny Promolo, and I'm here with Katrina Tessier, the owner of Scout Coffee and Tea. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. What is Scout Coffee and Tea? So we are what I call a play cafe. So we are kind of the normal things you would find at any cafe. We sell um, coffee, espresso, specialty drinks, um, teas, smoothies, stuff like that. Um, But we also have a play space in our coffee shop. So uh, people who have kids can bring them along. The kids can play while they sit and enjoy a coffee. What made you come up with this sort of idea? Because typically you see a lot of local coffee shops pop up in the city and, you know, it's a lot of that hipsterish vibe. But here, when you come in here, it's bright, airy, kind of like a real friendly f- family environment. What, what was behind that? Yeah, so the store is actually named after my daughter. Her middle name is Scout, and she is definitely the inspiration behind it. I, you know, five years ago, I wouldn't have thought about opening a coffee shop with a kid's space in it. Um, but especially um, having like uh, a stay-at-home parent, my husband stays um, at home now. He just works part-time evenings, so having all that free time during the day with your kid, uh, it can get uh, feel a little cooped up at home. And having somewhere that you can go and just hang out with your kid and feel comfortable hanging out without having to pay like a big cover charge um, is a great opportunity to have. So why coffee? I think one of those things that you realize once you're a parent that coffee and parenting go hand in hand. (laughs) Parents, especially new parents, and our space is kind of geared to that five and under age range, um, really appreciate a good cup of coffee and actually being able to have it while it's still hot (laughs) is also a bonus. We're seeing here that obviously there is a play space for children. It's a family environment. Speaking of family environment, you have something interesting for the month of February. Uh, Can you tell me about the I Love to Read month and the different events that you're holding here? Yeah, so this is um, our second time doing this. We did it last February as well, um, where we have kind of special guest readers come and they do stories and songs for the kids. And uh, it's just really, really fun and interactive. Um, and it gets kids involved in, in wanting to you know, hear stories and reading and stuff, which is great. What can some of the kids expect this year? Who are some of the guest readers? Mm-hmm. So we have um, an Elsa. We have a Marshall, like the fire dog from Paw Patrol. Um, we have Miss Frizzle. We have uh, Snow White. So kind of um, a variety of characters. We have a PJ Masks guest. So we kind of have you know a little bit of everything um, from the princesses to like the superhero kind of characters. Um, so we have a pretty good variety for everyone. That there should be something that you would like in that list. <laughs> As a mother, obviously, you really care about the growth of children and obviously their education with I Love to Read Month and supporting that. Why did you feel that that was really important to put out here in the community? I think just having a focus on story times in general, you know, is just a really good opportunity to get parents involved with their kids in reading and and having that as something that's fun to do with your kid um, is really something we like to promote. So for those parents that are wanting to come in and take part of the uh, I Love to Read Month festivities here at Scout, how can they get a hold of you or where can they learn more? Um, We have kind of all the events listed uh, in all the social media type aspects. We have them listed on Facebook, we have them on our Instagram, and we do have them on our website. Um, And there's no registration or anything, it's just drop in, there's no extra charge or anything for the events. So um, they all take place at noon on various days um, over the course of February. And yeah, you just show up and have enjoy story time. 
Absolutely. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and enjoy some uh, good stories. Thank you very much, Katrina Tessier, for joining us on River City 360. Have a great day. Thanks, Sonny. Now, if you or someone you know is making an impact through a local business or a grassroots initiative, we want to highlight their work on the show. Give us a call and tell us about them. Our listener line is always open 24-7, so just give us a call 204-944-9474, extension 360, that's 360, and just leave us a message. Up next, our spotlight on the Winnipeg Foundation's Reconciliation Grants is on the grant to Islamic Social Services Association and their project that looks to connect Muslim and Indigenous communities in really important and impactful ways. I'll be speaking with the Chief Operating Officer, William Barr, to learn more after our next song, which is 101 Strings, Dear Heart, right here on River City 360.
I'm here speaking with William Barr, the Chief Operating Officer of Islamic Social Services Association. William, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me today about Islamic Social Services Reconciliation Grants Project. Thank you. Can you describe your project and how it will create connections between the Muslim and Indigenous communities? Well, when we were first thinking about what we could do for a project, we started with the idea of getting to know one another. So we had two target areas. We wanted to focus on youth, both Indigenous and uh, Muslim newcomer youth, as well as women. So um, doing things such as a sister-to-sister meal at a mosque, and then somewhere chosen by the Indigenous community and, and building those types of partnerships. Why is collaboration so integral to this project? Well, historically, there's been a lot of overlap with uh, communities where Indigenous and newcomer people have settled here in Winnipeg. However, a lot of times those two populations haven't interacted together very much. And so we wanted to provide opportunities for people to build relationships that they could then move forward to the rest of their communities. How do you see the importance of community in terms of creating reconciliation through action? What we've always believed as an organization is that um, we can't just advocate for the rights of one group. We need to be working together whenever any community is harmed or is needing any type of assistance. So when it comes to communities, we we often focus on our own issues. And and so for the Muslim community, if we're simply focusing on uh, rising Islamophobia and things like that, we're not being true citizens of Canada, where we, we need to be focused on all issues, whether that's Indigenous water rights or honoring treaties. We need to be doing all of it as members of this society. Reconciliation is not the responsibility of one certain group. It's, it's everyone. Yeah, that's exactly right. And newcomers to Canada largely understand that you know, they're the most recently welcomed to this land. And although they were not involved in signing the treaties, they do feel a great need to honor those as new Canadians. So with this project, how would you describe success? What would make a successful project in your view? What we are really aiming for is to build opportunities for future collaboration between people from both communities. And we're also hoping to see more work being done from the newcomer perspective to advocate for Indigenous issues and vice versa. How do you see the conversation on reconciliation going and what do you think needs to take place in the future for for things to move forward? Well, I think that we we need to be listening to Indigenous voices in any conversation we have about that. In the end, any successful reconciliation project will be, at its core, Indigenous-led. So I, I believe that as long as we stick with that model and we make sure that everything that we do to act in the spirit of reconciliation is done through an indigenous lens and with indigenous individuals at the forefront, then we'll be successful. If we uh, begin trying to speak on behalf of communities in whichever community that is, then I think that we'll run into some of the same problems we've been running into for a very long time. In receiving one of the 20 reconciliation grants, how does the grant impact what you're trying to do at Islamic Social Services in creating more relationships and enhancing programming? Well, what it really does for us is it takes some of the things that we've been trying to do for many years and allows us to greatly enhance and build upon them. 
So we have been trying to build bridges between Muslim and indigenous communities for a long time. However, this gives us the financial means to actually put forward events that will be widely attended and really increase our reach. We're very excited and very honored to have been one of the 20 recipients. We know that there were a lot of applications and we're excited to get started and see not only the fruits of our initiative, but also these other 19 organizations that all seem to have very exciting proposals. Absolutely. And if any of our listeners would like to learn more about Islamic Social Services Association, where can they go to get more info? They can go to isakanda.com and uh, there's tons of information about everything that ISA does and all the upcoming events that we have and there's also opportunities to volunteer there as well. Great. William Barth, COO at uh, ISA, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Robert. We've got time for one last song before we say goodbye today, so here's Les Brown with Moonglow. You're listening to River City 360 on 93.7 CJNU.
That's a wrap on this week's episode of River City 360. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and a huge thank you to all of our guests for talking to us as well. If you'd like to hear more River City 360, listen to any of our past episodes, or subscribe to the podcast. You can do that at our website, rivercity360.org. Again, that's rivercity360.org. River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg, is a project of the Winnipeg Foundation in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM. And we'd love to hear your feedback about the show as well. If you'd like to request a song, suggest a topic for a future show, or if there's a story that you think we should cover on the program, give us a call at 204-944-9474, extension 360. Again, the number to call, 204-944-9474, extension 360. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for at WPGFDN on Twitter and searching for the Winnipeg Foundation on Facebook as well. I'm Nolan Bicknell signing off for River City 360. And I'm Robert Zirk. Thank you again so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Have a great day and a great weekend.